Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. Uh, this week, we're going to speak with science writer Dana Smith, who has a fascinating piece about how the pandemic is literally reshaping our brains or uh, the brains of many of us. Um, and we'll also talk to her about how we can try to address some of the damage that we may be experiencing. Then we're going to be joined by Lindsay Owens. Lindsay is the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. And we're going to talk about the state of play with the budget process and all of the legislative sausage making. Um, as you know, virtually the entire Democratic agenda and a lot of real world stuff hinges on this. Um, this budget reconciliation process uh, and, and the bipartisan framework, blah, blah, blah. It all sounds boring. I know. I know. I know it does. But it's uh, pretty important. Pretty important. First, uh, there is some potentially good news on the pandemic front. The Biden administration says that uh, 864,000 Americans got the jab on Wednesday, and that is the highest number in over a month. Um, just anecdotally, the New York Times reports that in Louisiana, where the Delta variant is running rampant through the population, hospitals are full, they're in crisis, and yet there is a silver lining, according to the Times. Um, the situation has been very prominent in the news, and I quote, demand for the shots has nearly quadrupled in recent weeks. So uh, it's, it's a shame that so many people had to see hospitals overwhelmed. It's a shame that so many people had to see uh, Delta cause yet another wave, an unnecessarily wave, uh, before deciding to get inoculated. But uh, that's America, right? Trump and Fox News and many, if not most, Republicans have made mitigating the pandemic a partisan issue. So, um, and by the way, I continue to think that that's not only a disastrous strategy, political strategy, uh, maybe a criminal political strategy, but I, I think it's a bad bet politically, because I've talked about this before. When you look at polling, when you actually look at the public opinion, um, responses to the pandemic are not as polarized as you might believe. <clears throat> you know, if you, if you flip on Fox News, they always associate public health measures with Democrats. They say Democrats are obsessed with masks or Democrats... Uh, want to punish the unvaccinated or Democrats, you know, don't, it's always partisan. But if you look at recent polls, two thirds of Americans, depending on the poll, somewhere around two thirds, as many as 70% favor vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates are popular. You never know it because the pro COVID minority the, the, these people who are just there, they, they apparently like the pandemic or they dislike science so much that they're willing to prolong the pandemic. This minority is so vocal, right? And also their nonsense gets amplified constantly by the conservative media, but then also by the, by the legacy media, by the mainstream press, because it's so weird, right? It's so weird for us. In the middle of this deadly pandemic, this historic public health crisis, to have people working against public health. And we've seen this consistently with public opinion throughout the pandemic. Most people have consistently favored public health measures to contain the outbreak. 
So it looks like uh, in the midst of this uh, new wave, and it is a big wave, it, it appears to be, and I should say that the vaccines are extremely effective, not only in keeping you from getting COVID, but if you do get COVID, if you do get a breakthrough infection, they're extremely effective in avoiding serious illness or death. So <clears throat> it, is, it appears that uh, silver lining is that people who were previously hesitant or at least waiting and seeing are going and getting vaccinated. You know, the um, there is a group, of course, that are unreachable. Uh, they are anti-vaxxers. But then there are other groups, as we've talked about on the show, that are not in that category. And there's people who are afraid of losing a job if they get side effects and they have to miss a couple of days work. There's people who are uh, misinformed about the risk of the vaccines themselves. Um but aren't necessarily ideologically opposed to it. And uh, it seems like with Delta just running rampant, um, a lot of them are, are deciding, well, let's, let's get the jab. So overall, half of the population is now fully vaccinated. That includes children who aren't yet eligible. So among adults, among the eligible population, it's higher still. It's about 60% are fully vaccinated. We're I think we're either at or approaching 70% with at least one, one job. So maybe we'll get out of this at some point. In the meantime, uh, take the Delta variant ser seriously. Take it seriously, even if you are vaccinated. Um, and on that um, happy note, let's take a quick break, and then we'll talk about your brain on pandemics. Stay tuned. Be the people. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. You know, I have not been ashamed to share the fact that my mental health has been less than perfect over the last year or so. Um, I'm burned out. Uh, I have this kind of pandemic fog. And I find that I have a very short attention span, among other things. And I was perusing Twitter, as I am wont to do, and I came across this really fascinating piece in the MIT Technology Review. It was titled, How to Mend Your Broken Pandemic Brain which, by the way, 
is an excellent, excellent headline, just as a headline aficionado, let me say that. And I am very happy to welcome the author of that piece to the show. Um, Dana Smith is a science writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic and Scientific American and all over the place. Uh, Dana, welcome to We've Got Issues. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. We almost have a theme today, which is really, really smart guests. And if you're if you ever do a podcast, if you get smart guests, um, they make you seem smarter. I don't know how that works. It's theory of transference of some sort. Anyway, um, Dana, I think we'll be studying the psychological impact of this pandemic for many years to come. Uh, I don't think we're talking enough about the kind of mental health crisis that this entire society has been suffering as a result of over a year of stress um, and and displacement and isolation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's talk about <clears throat> some of the things that many of us have been experiencing. And then I, I'm going to ask you to try to help us understand what may be happening inside our brains. What is neuroplasticity? What does that word mean? And, and why is it important? Yeah. Um, neuroplasticity is this idea that our brains are constantly changing. Um, for a long time, we thought that um, you know, your brain only changed through childhood. You know, you were growing a lot of new neurons and connections between neurons. You were losing the ones that you didn't need. That's all called neuroplasticity. And we, we knew for a long time that that happened um, just as part of normal childhood development as we grow up. Um, and then in the last, I want to say about 50 years or so, we realized that this process actually continues through adulthood. So for a long time, we thought that our brains were static, but it turns out they're not. They're constantly changing. Um, it they change less in adulthood than they do in childhood, um, but you are still growing new connections between neurons. You're still losing those connections um, just as a, a kind of healthy part of brain maintenance. And um, this neuroplasticity, you know, this plastic uh, neurology, this plastic brain um, is how we learn new things and create new memories. And how does stress over a prolonged period of time, you know, like say a year in, in lockdown or a year of having to wear masks when you go to the supermarket. How does that kind of prolonged stress change the way our brains function? It has a major impact on our brains and not a good one. Um, so chronic stress is, is really bad for our brains. The brain gets flooded with these stress hormones like cortisol and too much cortisol for too long can lead to the loss of brain cells and these brain connections. Um, they're, they're called synapses, the connections between brain cells. And a little bit of that is normal. You know, your brain kind of is pruning out, you know, broken synapses and unhealthy neurons. You know, that's kind of a, a normal, healthy process. Um, but with chronic stress, that uh, process gets turned up dramatically. So you're losing a lot more brain cells and connections than you would normally from all of this, you know, excess cortisol uh, in the brain. Um, and on the flip side, it also turns down your brain's ability to repair those connections and to create new ones. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a two-factor uh, hit for our brains in that you're losing a lot of connections that you would normally keep and your brain isn't as able to repair itself as it normally is. See, this is really interesting because it, 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 it offers a sort of explanation for some of the things that I've personally been experiencing. And let me just tell you one. So I, um, I've traditionally been... Uh, pretty good with learning languages. Like I, I lived in Germany for a while and I was kind of conversational after about 
I don't know, I want to say a month, two months there. And so during the pandemic, I had some extra you know, time when I wasn't going out to have dinner with people and whatever. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to finally kind of learn Spanish for real. And I started to take these, these lessons and I just could not, like my brain was not onloading language the way it had in, in, in the past. You know, it's not something that I've struggled with throughout my life, but suddenly I can't learn languages. That's Does, so interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes total sense. Your brain is not making new connections like it normally would. You know, we're not um, laying down the tracks between cells. You're not forging those new connections to help you learn, um, you know, the, the Spanish word to an English one. Um, you know, just like you're not able to make new memories. People have experienced a lot of forgetfulness uh, during the pandemic. And it's all related. It's, you know, it's that kind of loss of neuroplasticity in your brain. That's so, it's so interesting. What about the short attention span? I'm sure you've heard others talk about this. It's, it's something that um, I found was just a symptom, an unexpected symptom of, of being, especially when I was uh, really quarantining, I couldn't like watch a movie. I, my mind would start wandering and I, I wouldn't pay attention. I had to like, you know, watch movies I'd already seen or, TV shows because they were shorter. Does is that connected to this somehow? Totally. For me, it was books. You know, I I thought I have oh, I have all this extra free time. I'll I'll read all these books that I've been meaning to that have been on my shelves uh, for years, and I could not get through a single chapter. Um, yeah, and again, that is um, it's really a, a symptom of this chronic stress that people have been experiencing that we've all been experiencing. Um, and there, it, it's it comes down to the the area of the brain that's really impacted. Um, so one part of the brain that's really affected by stress is your prefrontal cortex. And that's, you know, that area right in the very front of your brain, um, right where your forehead is. And we know that, um, that excess cortisol, that extra, excess stress hormone, uh, really affects the prefrontal cortex a lot. So you see a lot more cell loss in that area and synapse loss in that area. And that's where your attention is, your self-control, your focus, um, is all kind of rooted in, in that area of the brain. And so when that gets um, hit by this excess cortisol, this chronic stress, you're not going to be able to function as you normally would um, or as your brain normally would in that area. Um, and interesting, it's related to anxiety as well, uh, something that I think a lot of people, a lot of us have experienced during the pandemic. Um, normally, your prefrontal cortex exerts some self-control over another, over other regions in your brain. Um, and they'll kind of tell those areas, oh, don't worry, you know, it's, it's not that bad. You can calm down, you know, you don't have to stress out. And when, again, you lose um, cells and connections in that prefrontal cortex, it loses its ability to exert self-control over other areas of the brain that then start to run wild a little bit. And that's where a lot of anxiety comes from. That's so interesting. So the executive, the, the prefrontal cortex, many people know this piece of the brain because teenagers haven't developed that, right? And it, it's what explains kind of immature, rash behavior. You haven't necessarily developed the piece of the brain that is responsible for self-control. Um, and then you talk about other pieces of the brain, like the amygdala that's known sometimes as the lizard brain, right? It's the fight or flight the fear center. And there are some studies that show that conservatives amygdalas tend to be larger than liberals, which is another whole interesting thing. But 
one of the things that I was that just occurred to me when I was reading your piece is that if you have uh, if you have inhibited executive control in the prefrontal cortex, that could lead you to um, more impulsive, potentially confrontational behavior like we've seen on airlines and stuff like that. Uh, people punching out people over masks. You know, we say, okay, this is generally a stress reaction, but there is something actually in the brain going on uh, that is at least consistent with that. I don't want to say it's a cause and effect thing. That's probably going beyond the data, but um, it certainly seems like it's consistent. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're on the right track. Um, you know, the prefrontal cortex is connected to a lot of other brain regions. So the amygdala, like you mentioned, is that kind of fear and anxiety center. And so with um, stress, you're specifically losing those connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Um, we know that happens with PTSD, for example. So again, you have a really overactive amygdala, you have a lot of anxiety, and you no longer have the prefrontal cortex to kind of tamp it down or, or tell it to, to calm down. Um, and the same happens with um, an area called the nucleus accumbens, which is the reward center of the brain. Um, we've seen a lot of drug overdoses and drug relapses during the pandemic. And the, the accumbens, that reward center, gets really overactive um, uh, in drug users in, in response to drugs of abuse. And again, normally the prefrontal cortex, you know, those two regions are connected and it would, again, kind of tamp down that uh, overactivity in this reward center. But if you lose those connections, if your prefrontal cortex loses strength, um, it's no longer able to do that. And I think you're probably right that that self-control region, um, again, is, you know, maybe taking place in people who are having outbursts of anger or, you know, other kind of um, behaviors that we might not have seen typically uh, on airplanes and things like that before the pandemic. Or in the Capitol, for example. Exactly. <laughs> I had mentioned on Twitter a couple of months ago that I'm like, I've been having this weird thing. I'm a very mild-mannered person normally, but um, I've been having this this experience where bad drivers are just making me so angry in a way that's not typical for me. And I think that that might be connected to this as well. Like I'll, you know, I'm not, I'm not breaking out the gun and shooting anybody or stopping and getting into fights, but I feel road rage, right? Like an emotional road rage. Um, and you also write that social isolation itself, just not being around people is also likely detrimental to the brain's structure and function. That's a quote from your piece, uh, likely detrimental to the brain's structure and function. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, social, social isolation is really stressful for us. Um, humans are social creatures. Our brains developed and evolved to be around other people, to be in tribes. Um, you know, that's kind of our, our default state. You know, a, a lot of our brain is dedicated to thinking about social relationships um, and social dynamics. And even when you're daydreaming or your mind is wandering, it's often about, you know, thinking about other people and your social relationships. Like our, our brains are just wired to be around people and to think about other people. And so not seeing other people having isolation because you're social distancing or because you're, you know, you live by yourself during a pandemic um, is really, really stressful for us. Um, there's even research that um, some scientists at UVA have done where 
they give people an electric shock, uh, you know, not enough to hurt them, but enough to be unpleasant. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a pretty stressful experience. Nobody wants to be shocked. But if you're around other people, if you're holding the hand of a friend or a loved one, you're a lot less stressed out. Your brain just doesn't react as much um, as it does when you're alone. And so not only are we wired to be around other people, you know, they are really a major stress reducer for us. So being alone is stressful for us and our brains and being with other people is a, a major stress buster for us. And so when you combine those two and you're alone in a stressful situation, your brain is, you know, really not in a happy state. Yeah. Um, so there's been this kind of like running theme in this show that we, we cover, we cover a lot of things that are depressing and I, I've been trying to not have depressing segments and we're not going to have a depressing segment here because there is good news in this story, right? I mean, it's not all bad news. Um, the title of the piece was about how we can mend our poor, broken pandemic brains. Um, so let's talk about that. How can we mend our poor, broken pandemic brains? Yeah, definitely. I you know don't want to be fatalistic about this. You know, just like your brain um, is changing all the time and can change in negative ways, it can also change in positive ways. Um, and we know how to to help it along and help it do that. Um, so one thing is just getting back to normal, you know, as people get vaccinated, as places open up, as you feel safe seeing friends and family again, your brain will respond to that. Um, you'll start, you know, de redeveloping those connections that you might've lost. You'll start to have less stress and your cortisol levels will drop and your brain will start to rebound, um, to its, you know, kind of natural pre-pandemic state. So, you know, there can just be spontaneous recovery as the world goes back to normal, your brain will too. Um, not everyone will respond, you know, quite so easily. I, I don't want to be flippant about this or, yes. you know, kind of say that, oh, depression, anxiety is, you know, easy thing to get over. Um, but a lot of people will get over naturally. Um, other people will have to push themselves a little bit more. There is kind of an aspect of fake it till you make it with your brain. Um, you know, if you force yourself to go out and be social, even if you don't want to, eventually your brain will, will get back online and, um, you know, start to, to respond like it, it used to. Um, another really great way to help your brain is through exercise, which is a little trite and a lot of people don't like hearing that. Um, but it really is one of the best things you can do for your brain because exercise boosts this, um, this chemical called BDNF, which is brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is a lot of words that basically say it's, it's a growth factor. So it literally helps your brain grow new synapses. That's its entire role. Um, and so exercise increases levels of this growth factor that will help your brain start to grow new connections again. And there's even some research that's a little bit up for debate uh, whether adults can grow new neurons themselves or just the connections between neurons. Um, but there is some evidence that exercise can help you even grow new brain cells, uh, not just the connections between them. So it's those so are some interesting. pretty I, you know, easy I, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm also trying to exercise more and more regularly. And I knew that it had like positive effects on one's mood generally. You know, you release endorphins and all that. I didn't know that it had this um, this other uh, potential to actually increase your brain connectivity. I'm also taking antidepressants, which are OK, I guess. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, and then. Another thing that you mentioned that people might find helpful, which I had never considered, is video games. 
Yeah, um, this is some really interesting research that is coming out of um, Adam Ghazali's lab at UCSF. So um, basically your brain is a muscle like any other muscle in your body and you can kind of exercise different regions. And so um, the goal is to exercise that prefrontal cortex to make it stronger. And um, you wanna increase activity in the area and by increasing that activity, you can actually maybe increase connectivity. You can create, again, new synapse growth in that area. Um, this is one idea of why meditation is helpful for people's self-control, is that you're exercising the self-control region, uh, that prefrontal cortex, with meditation. And that could then increase your self-control in other aspects of life. And um, what Dr. Ghazali has done is look at how video games can have the same effect. So he has a video game that is actually FDA approved to treat ADHD in children. Um, and the goal is to, again, kind of strengthen and flex that prefrontal cortex to increase activity and connectivity in that um, prefrontal self-control area. So he's now looking into whether that same game can help people who have experienced pandemic brain fog um, or even people who are recovering from COVID who've experienced some neurological uh, effects with it. And yeah, try and boost your, your attention and self-control and um, kind of increase cognition uh, and activity in that area. And I think that if you, you know, once you have that idea that, that there is a connection <clears throat> between stress and this and, and all of the things that we're talking about, then you can also say, well, what other things can I do to address stress? For example, one example you didn't mention in the piece, but um, getting enough sleep is an important stress reliever, right? Absolutely. And I think I think um, meditation is a great way to approach it. So you can just think of it in a more holistic way. Uh, stress doesn't only affect our brains. It affects our many other systems in our body. It's not great for uh, health. I interviewed a doctor at the University of Washington a couple of years ago who said that we're only scratching the surface of all of the deleterious effects that stress has on us. Um, he said it's it, for him. He believed that it was as as damaging as smoking, chronic stress. Uh, so you know, think about it in a bigger picture as well. Um, Dana Smith, great piece. Thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, not all of these things will work for every person or every brain, but hopefully, you know, there's a couple tips in here that, that might work for some people. Yeah. Take care of your brain. Um, folks, we're going to take a quick break and then come back with another very smart guest, Lindsay Owens. Stay tuned. Money.
Welcome back. I remain Joshua Holland, and I'm joined now by Lindsay Owens. Lindsay is the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. She's a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and at Data for Progress, and she was a former advisor to Liz Warren and others, so she has um, all the progressive nerd credentials you could possibly want. Uh, Dr. Owens, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. So I have to say this whole process... um, by which the entire democratic agenda seems to hinge is is kind of nerve-wracking. We've got like five democratic senators wedded to the filibuster and because of that um this in, everything is uh, rests on this big budget reconciliation package. Most listeners know that that's the budget process that allows the Senate majority to pass budget-related items with a simple majority. And then to make matters more complex, um, Joe Biden ran on unity and healing with his uh, far-right post-truth opposition. So we have this kind of kludgy two-track thing where we have this pared-down bipartisan framework that I never thought would see the light of day, but it seems to be creeping towards the finish. Um, And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer keeps pushing for votes on that, and Republicans keep saying we just need a bit more time. Kind of maddening. Uh, First of all, Lindsay, is this what you had in mind when you went into this business? Is this how you picture the legislative process? No. (laughs) Certainly certainly not. Uh, I I came over uh, to Washington from academia um, sort of wide-eyed and... uh, you know, ready to act. And this is definitely not what I had in mind. Um, (laughs) However, um, I will say, you know, in November, right after the election, I thought we wouldn't have the Senate. And so the whole sort of um, focus and the sort of very narrow aperture that I was looking at, um, you know, our ability to make an impact from was around administrative actions. And so I'll take, you know, budget reconciliation plus administrative actions any day. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, doing away with the filibuster would be incredibly helpful to pursuing the like type of legislative agenda that a country really needs. Yeah, I mean, this was not in the schoolhouse rock. They never put this in there. It's no. like, you know, I'm just a bill. I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill, right? And then the, the Senate passes me and then the House passes me the president signs me. That's, that was it. Schoolhouse rock. Um, okay, so where are we at this point in the process as we record this interview on Thursday? Sure. So as far as I know, the latest is that um, Majority Leader Schumer is planning to file cloture on the bipartisan package, um, the um, you know Jobs Act, uh, over the weekend, and that this could um, you know pass the Senate as early as Sunday. And I should remind listeners, we did a segment with Seth Hanlon from the Center for American Progress a few weeks back discussing what is uh, at least potentially in these parallel bills. And you should go back and listen to that because we talked about all the details. But I, I am sufficeth to say that I am not exaggerating when I say it's it's the whole Dem agenda, um, or at least pieces of the whole Democratic agenda, including maybe immigration reform and climate measures and Medicare expansion, et cetera, et cetera. It's very ambitious stuff. The bipartisan package is, of course, um, trimmed down and focuses on, quote unquote, hard infrastructure. So it's roads and bridges and and the like. Um, Lindsay, progressives have been notably agreeable throughout this process. Elected progressives, anyway. I haven't been agreeable at all. But 
Um, the New York Times reports that in the House, at least, they are getting a bit restless. Emily Cochran uh, is the reporter, and she writes, and I quote, Liberals who have bristled at seeing their top priorities jettisoned from the infrastructure talks as President Biden and Democrats sought an elusive deal with Republicans have warned that they may seek to change the bill substantially when they have the chance. This is, again, referring to the bipartisan package. Um, What is the interest of House progressives in messing with the bipartisan deal rather than focusing on getting the stuff that they want into the reconciliation package. Isn't, isn't that the better place to fight, given how fragile the Senate coalition is? Sure. Um, that's a great question. So the, the first thing I should clarify is the, um, the package that could pass the Senate as early as Sunday is, is the bipartisan package. Um, and then, assuming that that you know, clears the Senate um, you know, over the weekend or early next week, they would move to... Um, you know, a motion to proceed an early vote on the on the full uh, budget resolution, which would accommodate the larger Build Back Better agenda. Um, you, you know, your question is around what's going to go on in the House when this narrower bipartisan hard infrastructure bill passes the Senate. Um, and I think I, I think the reporting is accurate, and I think your intuitions are correct. I think um, there are a number of folks in the House who aren't going to be happy with the Senate's version of the bipartisan infrastructure package. I think there are a few reasons for this. Um, you know, the first is I've worked in both the House and the Senate, and I've seen the sort of dynamics at play. And, you know, the Senate gets a little more, um, a little more prestige, a little more attention, um, particularly right now when it's so narrowly divided. Um, and I think the House definitely, folks in the House are going to want to uh, leave their mark on the bill. So that's the kind of like narrow um, sort of petty-ish politics of it. But I think the more, um, you know, the sort of weightier point is that uh, the House actually did spend a lot of the last, um, you know, two-year congressional term working on infrastructure. Um, I believe it was HR2. It was the second second most important um, piece of legislation in the um, in the two-year term, the first being the democracy reform legislation, HR1. And, um, you know, Chairman DeFazio of the Transportation Committee and those members, you know, spent a huge amount of time working on infrastructure legislation. They have a lot of expertise that they've developed over the last, you know, years, decades for some of these members. Um, they have a lot of priorities that matter a lot to folks in their districts. Um, and they're going to want to take a crack at amending this and um, improving it based on um, you know, what they need um, to take home to their districts, but frankly, also um, based on their expertise around what infrastructure investments we should see over the over the long haul. Um, you know, your point on whether or not they should, you know, leave the bipartisan uh, package alone and try to move those priorities in the, um, in the, you know, the reconciliation process is an interesting one. I think the you know, rate limiting factor here ultimately is that the, um, you know, the budget resolution sets a spending cap, right? And so insofar as their infrastructure, um, you know, proposals and investments are are pricier, um, you know, easier, you know, for them in theory to do that in the bipartisan package where there isn't actually a spending cap. Yeah, but you have Republican pushback on anything that goes over a certain amount. And, um, you know, they're, they're happy to shower, you know, wealthy people and corporations with massive amounts of tax spending. But, whoa, when you talk about, oh, let's go over a certain figure, they they balk. Um, At the same time, 
Kirsten Sinema, the senator from Arizona, who has become the kind of leader of the pain in my ass caucus. She's saying she won't accept the three point point five billion. Sorry, the three point five trillion dollar price tag over a 10 year period that has been discussed for the partisan bill, the reconciliation bill. Is everyone playing chicken here to make sure that they get their uh, their priorities addressed or to put, as you say, their their mark on it? Or would cinema or, or um, House progressives or Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator and king of America, would would they really blow up their party's whole agenda? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hard um, hard to make predictions. And, sure. You know, I, I I can offer you know a few, and um, you know, don't have me back to fact check me. <laughs> no, I won't do that. That would In be real rude. Time. Um, but I think, look, I mean, you know, I think it's clear that Kristen Cinema has. Um, you know, demonstrated repeatedly that she's not going to miss an opportunity to be in the center of any piece of legislation uh, in the Biden administration. (laughs) Um, So I think we were going to see her with, um, you know, getting her line edits, getting her amendments, making her perspective clear um, at every turn. And I expect that that will be true, even once the, you know, initial resolution passes, which sort of sets the stage for this, um, reconciliation process to begin in the committees. Uh, and and so I think that's, you know, a pretty much a guarantee. Um, the question of whether or not they can, you know, effectively undermine the agenda, I, you know, I, I ultimately think that, um, you know, the Biden agenda, the Build Back Better agenda, by and large, um, you know, will move forward and will be signed into law this year. Um, I don't think at the end of the day, Manton and Cinema are going to blow up the entire um, the entire Dem agenda. I think there's going to be horse trading. I think there are going to be questions when we come back from August recess around the level, um, the tax, you know, the tax piece in particular. Um, yes. You know how like where we land on the corporate rate, where we land on the number of years the child tax credit is extended. I think all of those things will be. Um, you know, tweaked, massaged, horse traded, all, all of the usual sort of sausage making that you see when a large, and this is an incredibly large piece of legislation, yes, it um, is. moves through Congress. But I ultimately think it will land. And I, I don't actually think that that price tag will be the whole ballgame in the end. Yeah. I, I must say, Sedema, she seems really intent on um, aggravating Democrats. I, I mean, the, there are things that are substantive, uh, you know, maybe she has substantive concerns about the legislation, but um, Chuck Schumer said that he would keep Congress in session. And she was like, if need be to get this passed. And she was like, oh, I have a vacation plans. I'm going to go on vacation. So there, she makes me bad. Anyway, listeners should understand one thing. This could all go south if one of the Democrats has a stroke or whatever. You know, one of the older, it's, it's an old caucus. Um, that's what made the Affordable Care Act less progressive. Um, Ted Kennedy, tragically, was stricken with cancer. And several months later, House Democrats had a more progressive bill, but they had to pass the, the version that was, um, that was passed by the Senate, a kind of watered down, more compromised version, uh, exactly the way it was written, because they no longer had the votes in the Senate to um, negotiate between the two chambers to reconcile different bills in the House and the Senate. Um, so that's 
a risk that all of this, all of this that we're talking about, there, there comes with a great amount of risk. Anyway, um, let me ask you this. This is something that I'm really curious about. What prevents this bipartisan deal, smaller bipartisan deal going through, and then moderate Dems like complaining about inflation and balking at the price tag and really um, kneecapping progressives? I mean, is there a mechanism? Is, is it all a matter of trust? Do they just have to trust um, the kind of more moderate, faction uh, when they say that they will support a big partisan bill? Yeah, the downside risk of, you know, moving forward with the with the bipartisan package has always been that it could crowd out the larger um, budget resolution package. And I think that risk is still very real. Yeah. Um, the way that progressives in the House have tried to hedge against that risk is by tying the two together um, and insisting on a dual tracked process. Um, you know, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has publicly come out in favor of that um, dual track process and said that that is the only process by which these things will move through um, move through the House. I think that gives me a lot of confidence, um, but it's not foolproof. Um, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, these, these two um, pieces of legislation can move through the Senate, uh, the House comes back, and then, um, you know, they, they move to pass both of them. Um, and both of them have to pass. <laughs> if both of them don't pass, we're in a world of trouble. Um, yes. I do think, um, you know, it does feel, um, you know, I feel bullish on it, and I'm usually pretty pessimistic about this stuff, um, but it does feel like it's moving in the right direction. Um, I mean, the other thing that I'll say is that, you know, going back to that kind of very parochial point I made around the folks in the House and the Senate, like actually, you know, coming to Congress to legislate and like wanting to get their turn and wanting to use the pen that they have. I mean, I do think that the larger piece of, um, you know, the budget reconciliation bill, uh, bill is going to have instructions for a host of committees and members are going to be interested um, in being a part of those committee markups and in putting their stamp on the legislation. And so I do think some of this, um, you know, some of this, this, some of these individual interests um, are in line with Biden's agenda in helpful ways. Yeah, and Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, has said that she's not going to she's not going to pass the reconcil the um, bipartisan framework, the more limited bill, uh, and, and until until they get to the reconciliation bill. Now, this is um, this creates a time win a window of time, an extended window of time, and and. That speaks to the risks that I just mentioned, in, in addition to other risks like um, the conventional wisdom congealing around the idea that, um, you know, inflation is a big problem, for example. Here's a mystery uh, before I let you go. I'm going to read you a brief quote from Politico uh, with apologies. I'm not a big Politico fan, but this is from Politico Straight Reporting. Maybe you can help me figure out what the hell is going on. Politico reports, and I quote, <clears throat> Democrats are likely to pass up their best chance to avoid a standoff over the debt limit without GOP votes, a move that will thrust Congress into risky territory this fall as the threat of economic ruin approaches. <laughs> Let's just play with the threat of economic ruin. Um, it goes on, there will be no language on raising or suspending the debt ceiling in the budget measure Senate Democrats expect to unveil. 
Instead, the party is looking to a short-term funding bill designed to avert a government shutdown at the end of September as the next opportunity for debt limit action, an approach that would require Republican support. Okay, so I usually feel like I'm pretty savvy, and I am completely stumped by this. Um, Lindsay, can you first just briefly explain what the debt limit is? And why it needs to be raised for listeners who don't follow this stuff. And then try to help me understand why in the world they wouldn't deal with this in reconciliation. Sure. Um, So this is a great question. Um, And I do think we are, um, you know, we are definitely headed towards a debt ceiling showdown, not unlike the two showdowns that we, um, you know, that we experienced in the um, in the Obama administration. Um, And this is a you know, tried and true Republican tactic. And Mitch McConnell has already signaled that, um, you know, brinksmanship is going to be the order of the day on the debt ceiling. Um, You know, he is saying that there won't be a Republican vote for the debt ceiling. um, And Dems are, um, you know, moving forward uh, with the need for potentially bipartisan votes on the debt ceiling, which he is saying that he will not provide. Um, You know, so the debt limit is the um, the amount of money that the U.S. Um, can spend to pay down its obligations. And so, um, you know, we need to either suspend the debt limit or raise the debt limit shortly um, to ensure that we aren't um, defaulting on our, our obligations, which can cause all sorts of problems from very, um, you know, clear, you know, people will feel the effects of that if we can't get out social security payments or military salaries. Um, but there will also be real problems in the global market, the stock market. Um, we could also have our credit rating downgraded. Um, so it's pretty important that we, um, you know, that we suspend or raise the debt limit um, soon. And um, Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has made that clear to Congress. Um, I think there are a couple of things going on here. The first is that it's not clear that um, there will be um, partisan legislation uh, moving quickly enough to actually handle the debt limit issue. Um, so depending on what the like, you know, eventual expiration date is, which is a bit in flux, um, it might be the case that, um, you know, the Dems couldn't get the reconciliation, um, legislation through quickly enough, um, to include the debt ceiling, um, in a timely fashion. Um, but I do think that relying on, you know, an end of year spending bill is going to be tough. Um, and I think that, if Republican votes eventually come to the table, like they will certainly demand a pound of flesh. And I think the types of things that they will, um, they will require and ask for will be things that we really don't like, and that will be really bad for Americans and for our economy. So um, I'm certainly not looking forward to this, um, this fall and, um, you know, hopeful that Congress can uh, move a bipartisan, you know, debt ceiling suspension on a, you know, expediently. um, But, you know, history tells us that um, the Republicans really enjoy forcing a debt ceiling crisis when there is dim control. Uh, it's so ridiculous. It is maddening. And I just want everybody to understand that this has nothing to do with the amount of debt. Right. This has nothing to do with the, amount, the, the debt is created by Congress allocating spending that is more than the amount of taxes that they have collected in their tax laws and through the implementation of those tax laws. This is only a question of whether we pay our debt or not. So it's not like this increases the deficit. This doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And um, I just want everybody to also understand that this was never an issue until Mitch McConnell became Senate Minority Leader 
uh, Senate Republican leader and um, Democrats elected a black guy with a funny name. Like that's when this started. And it's it's maddening. And honestly, they need to they need to abolish the debt limit or or create an automatic mechanism where it increases as need be to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. It is outrageous. I'm so sick of this stuff. The the Progressive Caucus position has for some time been to abolish the debt ceiling. And I think that is certainly the right, um, the right approach from a policy perspective and an approach widely uh, supported by economists. Yeah, I think so as well, because look, we're going to, every time we do this brinksmanship, um, you know, the stock market fluctuates, goes down, people panic. It's just bad. It's bad for everybody. Lindsay Owens, I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and for explaining all of this stuff. Sure. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Folks, check out the Groundwork Collaborative at groundworkcollaborative.org. I'd also like to thank Lindsay Owens and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.